This is Channel 253. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. One, two, two. Interchangeable. White Ladies. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Annie. Before we get rolling today, we just want to ask listeners to consider becoming members of Channel 253. It's just $4 a month or $40 a year, and it helps support all of our programming, especially our adult civics happy hours. Uh, all you need to do is go to www.channel253.com slash membership. Thanks. Thanks. And on to the show. So our essential question today is what is a tenants union and why do cities need them? So, as you know, Annie and I are both teachers and not That's exactly true. directly involved in this work. No. So, we brought in a guest, as yes. we are wont to do. Yeah. <laughs> and today we have with us Molly Nichols. Hi, Molly. Hi. Hi, Molly. Molly moved to Tacoma from Pittsburgh last year, where she organized transit riders. Now she works at the as the Tacoma Outreach Coordinator with FutureWise and is a member of the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee. Also, she was a high school and college teacher. What? That's awesome. So, have you had like an array of experiences? How do we always get these awesome people who are like used to be teachers and now they're doing amazing things like we've had several guests who were teachers and now we're doing like amazing organizing work it's the intersection of the skill set education and like yeah. a good teacher yeah. put them puts themselves out of a job a good organizer mm. puts themselves out of a job it's yeah. like the same idea interesting like yeah. so can you tell us a little bit about your life in pittsburgh what you were doing there and how you came to tacoma sure yeah i moved to pittsburgh in 2006 and I first worked as a program manager for an AmeriCorps program, like leadership development thing called Public Allies, and then went to graduate school, was studying um, literature and the environment mm. and environmental movement, specifically cool. in the Caribbean, like how a lot of people think of environmentalism as this white guy thing, yeah. which it often is, mm -hmm. but like call, acknowledging all the ways environmental movements come from post-colonial sites, mm -hmm. specifically the Caribbean, mm. um, researched some folks who mm -hmm. fought against an aluminum smelter plant in Trinidad. It was really awesome wow. and like how yeah, the art intersected yeah. with that. And I really enjoyed grad school and teaching. Got to teach at the college level after teaching high school, um, but also realized that the scholarly stuff wasn't really mm -hmm. my jam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mainly because I like urgency. Mm -hmm. Like I needed mm -hmm. yeah. things to be immediate and happening right in the moment, where scholarly work is a much longer, <laughs> drawn out the long process. end game. Yeah, yeah. Like but forty years and here's this four page <laughs> document. Yeah. <laughs> so. While working on the dissertation, I got really involved in activism in Pittsburgh through um, the Occupy movement. Yeah. And then there were these huge set of transit cuts that happened in mm -hmm. our uh, community. And we connected with some bus drivers who knew where a lot of the cuts had most affected folks. Mm -hmm. And we went into those neighborhoods mm -hmm. with the drivers, which was awesome, and, and were able to mobilize people to fight to get their bus service back. That's so amazing. that was kind of my first real experience organizing. Yeah. Um, was really great experience. Were you glad you left the books in the wayside? <laughs> yes. But what was cool is, like, I, I found that... Being able to take the critical analysis mm. I had developed in graduate school was really great to bring into the activist yeah. circles. And having some experience in the nonprofit, that was helpful, too, because mm -hmm. I sometimes yeah. found the nonprofit world didn't have as much of the grassroots organizing yeah. focus. That the um, And then sometimes... Um, having that bigger analysis, critiquing the whole system mm -hmm. that I developed in grad school was really helpful. Mm -hmm. So it was a good kind of nexus of some of the skills yeah. I developed mm -hmm. and then finding this was really something I like to yeah. do the most. So like in organizing, you don't get stuck in the weeds. You still have that kind of big vision of where you're going and not like in the nitty gritty details of every day, but still being able to focus on those details when you need to. Yeah, a little bit of both. That's a good skill set. So if you were if you were to think of like one or two lessons that you kind of learned yourself from about organizing or from, maybe about yourself <laughs> during mm. that work, what would you say there? So it's not about me. Mm. The putting aside of the ego. I remember yeah. the first time when I wasn't um, an 
actual organizer, just more of a volunteer. Uh, I got to MC this big rally, mm-hmm. and oh. I was like on the news, and I was so excited. And then uh, as things went on, as I started connecting with bus riders and making yeah. it so important that the folks most affected are center to the struggle, mm-hmm. I was like. I'm not going to hold the mic anymore. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to make sure this is a space for other folks who can lead the rally. And they might yeah. feel like, I'm not ready for that. But, you know, help encouraging them and making mm-hmm. sure that, like, I'm not in the center of this at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one really important piece. And the other, I think, is the constant balance between when you're you're struggling for a win mm-hmm. and Sometimes it can be easy to get really consumed by that. And I, as a very privileged white woman, have mm-hmm. a lot of access yeah. more to the, like mm-hmm. the halls of power. And it can be easy for me to be like, I'll just go in and like make these deals yeah. where mm-hmm. that's not what it's about. Like making mm-hmm. sure that the folks who are most affected are at the tables and a part yeah. of the process and that it's not just about the win because you get the win. How long is that going to last yeah, exactly. if you haven't grown any power? It's it's just as much about the process of how we mm. got there mm-hmm. and that people felt a part of the process, learning skills, mm. developing leadership, and then they're ready to help like maintain whatever win mm-hmm. we got and then go mm-hmm. to the next one and I'm not needed anymore. Mm-hmm. Like that's the ideal. Yeah. So you worked your way out of a job there. Well, somewhat. Um, I we ended up we were really lucky. We were able to get some funding from a really a progressive foundation. Well, at least the program officer was progressive, uh, <laughs> and we're like, do your thing, like challenge. The big thing we were able not only getting the service back was just making the transit agency more accountable to the people, mm-hmm. and so that was a really amazing experience. That it wasn't just about folks getting their buses back, but changing it so that anyone who had issues with the transit system there was a more transparent, inclusive process for like. Like, this is our transit yeah. system. Like, we should all have a say over mm-hmm. it. Um, so that fortunately, the foundation was really supportive of us doing that kind of thing. And then I moved out here because my partner got a job at Pacific Lutheran University. Oh, okay. So it was hard to leave. Yeah. And there was a few staff in our organization. And uh, someone who'd been involved on the board was able to take over as the director. So, mm. yeah, they're still they're doing awesome things. Oh, cool. So it That's was good great. that yeah. while I was a big part of it, the Pittsburghers for Public Transit could keep going. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, now uh, I've been here since August of last year. Okay. Um, How do you like it so far? I like Tacoma a lot. It yeah. reminds me of Pittsburgh in a lot of ways mm-hmm. as, like, a post-industrial town. Yeah. Everyone knows everyone. Yeah. A lot of great art and culture and community. And, like, feels like a small town, even though it is a city. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. We've talked about and it. And, yeah, awesome. I moved out. My daughter was only six weeks old when we moved yeah. out here. So I did the mom thing mainly for a while mm-hmm. and then got back involved into organizing in the spring. So yeah. how did you get involved here yeah. in that work? So I connected with the Democratic Socialists of mm-hmm. America, mm-hmm. Um, and they were interested in uh, – some folks were interested in understanding the kind of housing stuff mm-hmm. that was going on. Mm-hmm. And then around the same time, I got a job at FutureWise, okay. which is a statewide nonprofit. They're based in Seattle, and their basic thing is to fight for uh, – advocate for um, – equitable and sustainable urban growth yeah. and land use policy. Yeah. So they help ensure that the Growth Management Act is followed, basically. Mm-hmm. And they got a grant to help um, do some organizing in Tacoma around affordable housing, transportation, mm-hmm. and green infrastructure, right, yeah. like kind of that nexus. So I've been doing some work supporting community engagement in the Tacoma Mall neighborhood, oh, like okay. around the sub-area plan. But then there was this bigger affordable housing mm-hmm. kind of movement yeah. in Tacoma, specifically to the, the action strategy the city was working on. But I said to FutureWise, well, I can show up and just start talking about good policy for affordable housing, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that's going to be as effective as actually like connecting Mm -hmm. with the people Mm -hmm. who are affected by this. And right now there's this a lot going on with tenant rights and tenant protection. Mm -hmm. So even though FutureWise doesn't you know, they're more focused on land use and mm-hmm. policy. Mm-hmm. Um, they supported me in, you know, helping to organize tenants who could then yeah. advocate not just for tenant rights and protections, but mm-hmm. like bigger picture mm-hmm. affordable housing policies. So tenant rights and protections, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that those are established like city by city. So each city kind of handles their own tenant like policies? I mean, there's some statewide laws that are Yeah, the state of Washington has the Residential Landlord Tenant Act that has a whole set of rules. The challenge that is there is that 
it's mainly a civil enforcement. Mm. So if I don't get my security deposit back, for example, I yeah. have to just take a landlord to a small claims court. Mm, okay. And there's not as much like city le- public level of enforcement. Okay. So part of and then in places like Seattle, they have their own municipal code that includes just cause protection, which mm, is the thing yeah. we really want here too. That says a landlord can't terminate a tenancy on a month to month for no reason. Like they just yeah. have to have a reason. So Seattle has one specific. Mm. So I think across the country, it's often the state law will determine the bigger picture right, and then yeah. individual municipalities okay. will. Um, and so the current set of protections they're looking at, there's some examples where there may be a thing in the state law, like you can't discriminate based on someone having a Section 8 voucher. But right. the city is choosing to then make those folks considered a member of a protected class. So the oh, city okay. can use their own enforcement mechanism. Otherwise, if I had a Section 8 voucher... The landlord didn't accept it. I would have to go through a civil process. Yeah. But because the city's working to make sure it's something the city can enforce, that makes a big difference. Absolutely. Well, it kind of reminds me, I mean, AP Gov teacher over there. Yeah. But like this idea of if the federal government can have like a minimum and then the states can have more uh, stringent or strict rules, right? As yeah. long as they meet the federal mandates, right? It's Isn't so, that the same yeah. thing? So the so, state can yeah. have like broad but then yeah. the cities can actually be more strict or more progressive or more whatever, yeah. right? That's what that's how I understand it. I mean, if you think about like on a federal level, it's a little bit a little bit more complicated because of our like federal system of government within states. I mean, you know, in Washington, you see these um, you see a lot of laws that are more progressive and more sometimes I would say more strict, but for good cause yeah. in cities than at the state level. Um I mean, like, even things like, even stuff that you wouldn't even think about, like, cities have, um, which are really controversial, but have, like, um, breed bans for dogs. Mm-hmm. Whereas the state doesn't ban pit bulls, mm-hmm. but the yeah. city of Enumclaw bans pit bulls, right? Like, it, they have... It just still has to fit in the umbrella of whatever the state's parameters are. Yeah, and the right? state can so intervene if a law is, uh, like, if a law's in, city law is in violation of state law, mm-hmm. or if a law is, um, like onerous like they can mm. the state can intervene um but yeah it's um it's interesting like thinking about landlord tenant stuff i lived in bellingham and there were a lot of issues with i mean more than 50% of the housing in bellingham is rentals because of the college and so mm. it's um you know it's it's crazy how um the kind of weird crap that landlords get away with yeah. i mean just like i mean black mold like you know not you know taking care of their i had a friend who lived in a rental in bellingham that had previously been a crime scene that was a um, meth, a meth lab yeah. and it was not properly mitigated That's after so the crazy. after it was like investigated they didn't like because with with methamphetamines you have to like replace drywall yeah. like that wow. that's really toxic for people who live there Isn't afterwards that why and you just have it in your rv i guess because i mean otherwise no. you know yeah <laughs> yeah um but yeah so it's interesting so you mentioned that seattle has a just cause law yeah do any other cities in, t- in the state of washington have something like that no really okay. Wow. But the good news is other municipalities are working on Mm. it. Tacoma, Mm. we got close. We're going to keep mobilizing for that. Spokane is working on it. I think there's a Bellingham Tenants Union now that may be working on it. And the Tenants Union of Washington is a statewide group that has offices in Seattle and Spokane have been really supportive of what Tacoma has been doing. So we're looking at actually getting just cause at a state level. And we think we have some support from state representatives to do that because, yeah, it could be a really amazing opportunity to get folks across the state to advocate. I mean, in so many ways, it's to most people, you would think the notion that the home that you live in, Mm -hmm. that someone could just kick you out of it for Mm -hmm. no reason is a pretty unjust law Mm -hmm. that we currently have. Um, And they do make sure that there are reasons that a landlord can have. Like, obviously, if the person's not paying rent or violating the lease or causing issues, or even if the landlord decides, I don't want to rent this property anymore, or I want to rent it to an immediate family member, they have it written in. But right now, one of the big challenges with the no cause, which is how it currently is, People, landlords can use the no cause eviction to discriminate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically, a land. We had a gentleman a few months ago who came to us and said he got a twenty day notice, and the landlord he said, "Well, why?" And the landlord's like, "Well, I don't have to give you a reason." And he happened to be someone who advocated for yeah. issues in his apartment. He also was African American. He wasn't sure if that was related, but you know, uh, another individual who had a disability and a service dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and a biracial son and was concerned that that had, you know, but it's so 
challenging that you right mm-hmm. now it's against the law for a landlord to sc- discriminate when they're accepting a tenant. But there's no law. Once they accept mm-hmm. the tenant within 20 days, they can just say or no, the next month they could just give a 20 day notice and say, wow. OK, you're out yeah. now. And because there's no they don't have to have any reason they can hide behind yeah. the no cause while they're discriminating, basically. Yeah. That, to me, is one of the most compelling cases for why yeah, we're just Yeah, my caught. face is all just scrunched up because I'm just thinking about <laughs> you what you're saying. You can't see it, but it's really scrunchy. Yeah, and I'm thinking about a, a landlord accepting somebody and then deciding that they don't want that person in there. And all the factors, yeah. like, just don't accept in the first place is my nat- first inclination. But if you think about the laws that are set up to protect people from discrimination right. from being accepted in the first place like that's just yeah i wonder about and this just popped in my head and i don't know if this is too tangential but i thinking about like all the news coverage of like neighborhood associations in seattle and how it's like 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 nimby crazy like um you know i know that like bellingham for i know a lot about bellingham because i lived there for eight years but like the neighborhood associations have been really um, positive in like terms of supporting tenants union whereas in seattle it kind of is a crapshoot like certain neighborhoods are like yeah we don't want to we don't we want anyone who's homeless in our neighborhood. Also, we don't want affordable housing because it'll bring down our property <laughs> values. So like are you, you see that tension that kind of essential tension happening in other in cities Tacoma, or I, I can talk about in Tacoma specifically, I think it's interesting. There hasn't been as much of a narrative from my experience so far of we don't want um, p- affordable housing in our neighborhood. I yeah. haven't picked up as much on that, though okay. The they're looking at doing the accessory dwelling units where people oh, can yeah. build like a mother-in-law suite yeah. in the neighborhood. And mm. there is, some people don't like the idea of getting more dense neighborhoods. So mm. Tacoma is zoned, I think, almost 70% single family residential. Wow. Yeah. And we need to have more multi-unit. More more Um, density. Yes, exactly. And what they call the missing middle, which is like duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes. And there is pushback depending Mm. on the neighborhood. A few years ago, the West Slope... Association wanted to become a con- have a conservation district, mm. which would mean that no zoning changes could happen there. This was, oh. I think, in 2015, and they went to council to ask for that. And council actually turned them down, partly because that particular neighborhood has restrictive covenants that oh. are still on the books that literally say black people cannot live in their homes oh. unless they're served. Okay, wait. Shame Bell. Shame Bell. Shame Bell. Shame Bell. I knew be able to. I'm sorry, Molly. So, we didn't warn her about the shame Oh, <laughs> it's, it's something shameful happens. You can ring awful. it, too. You, you can, can ring it. Anybody yeah, can grab it and just ring it. Wow. And that's obviously yeah, not that's legally enforceable, horrible. but it's still technically Absolutely. on the books. So city yeah. council did a solid by saying, like, we're not – they're saying we need a conservation district to honor the character of our neighborhood, meaning that this, the yeah. zoning wouldn't change, but uh, to not then say we're going to get rid of these restrictive covenants, even if at this yeah. point it's, yeah. mo- you know – A moot point because the state law says that it's – Right, yeah. but – but it's Why not a moot point them? because we have segregated neighborhoods. So yeah, and then it's, it's not it, a whenever point someone's at all. saying they don't want rentals in their neighborhood mm-hmm. or multifamily units, like yeah. what is behind that? Especially when we consider the history of housing policy and right. exclu- yeah. deliberately exclusionary right. policies, redlining, like that kind of thing. We really need to pay attention to. Yeah. yeah. Um, but. My impression is that folks in the city of Tacoma are, are recognizing we know there's a huge crisis. People have different ideas about how to solve it. Sure. Some people talk a lot about we just need to build more units and we're good. Mm-hmm. There's merit. Sure, we need more units mm-hmm. when there's such a shortage and um, <clears throat> the vacancy rate is so low. But it, right now, if you're extremely low income, so you make 30 percent of the area mm-hmm. median income or below mm-hmm. – if there are a hundred of you of those folks, there are twenty-seven apartments available, mm-hmm. units available. Yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. how extreme the need yeah. is. So if we just start building like luxury housing, people right. claim it like trickles down, but there's recent studies that show in Seattle, the rents for high market places are actually going down, but mm-hmm. the rents at lower market going are going up. So oh it, my gosh! So yeah. we, yeah, um, the the bigger picture with housing, I'll just say that. The, the fundamental conflict, which I mentioned at Adult Civics Happy Hour, mm-hmm. is that housing is a human right, mm-hmm. but in our society, it's treated as a commodity for profit. Mm-hmm. And those don't match very well. Yeah. And until we really challenge that dynamic, it's going to be hard to ever have a just housing system. Mm-hmm. Um, and a really good book, I haven't finished it, it's called The Color of Law, mm-hmm. um, yeah. about redlining, segre- yeah. how deliberate it's yeah. been in our country, but also the complete decimation of public housing. Right. So yeah. the private 
real estate industry fought to keep public housing right. from growing. Yep. And now, like, I think 96 to 97 percent of the market is private. And people are like, well, we need the private market as a solution. Yeah. And sure, that's true now. But I think in general, there's a real movement to say we need more public housing. Mm-hmm. We need mm-hmm. more collective control of our land and communities. Mm-hmm. Um, or we're always going to be in this situation mm-hmm. where... In general, the private real estate market's goal is to make money. Mm-hmm. They may house people in the process of that, but in as that's happening, in order for people to um, really gain their rights, this is the tenants' union question, like they have to come together to build mm-hmm. collective mm-hmm. power and then get support from the government to ensure right. that their rights are protected and that we just have more affordable housing for people. Yeah. Like if we just rely on the market for this problem, it's just going to get continue as it is or right. get even worse. Because it seems like the only, like, if you're an individual homeowner in the city, the only, like, direct way you can help alleviate this problem is like like if the city allows for example like ADUs like backyard you know small homes or whatever that as an individual you can do that but that this the change has to come at a system-wide level otherwise it won't stick exactly okay well it's interesting um and I'll just admit because we tend to admit things on the show on the show like I don't think I ever Confession it's only time. been more it's only probably been in the last year that I've really like I love the phrase that you said that housing is a human right because I think it's only in the last year that that even that language that I've thought about that and like in in inside of me I'm like yes that totally resonates like of course but I it's just not something that I, has really been on my radar the same way right and I'm, I've mm-hmm. been privileged to like not mm-hmm. have to have that be on my radar mm-hmm. and to not think about that and so I think about we we really recommended um, the book Evicted and the Color of Law has been mentioned mm-hmm. and Nicole Hannah Jones. Um, text that I'm now forgetting that I'll link to in the show notes because it'll, it'll come back to me by the end of the, the show. middle of the night but just thinking about those those pieces and like how privileged we are not to have to think about that kind of stuff if we've had our housing taken care of or we've had income or like mm-hmm. jobs that provide income so that we can make some choices for living in the kinds of places that we can live that are you know mm-hmm. safe and secure and not moldy and all those kinds of things and so yeah. I think especially for those of us who have been able to ignore that we really need to start embracing that notion yeah. of housing a, as I, a you know as a right um, for people who own homes too, like I own, like we own a condo, and like how quick you forget about renting, like issues for renters mm-hmm. when you own a condo or a home, mm-hmm. and so like just being clued into like what's going on with like your friends who are renters, like we have friends who are renters, right? Like mm-hmm. talking to them about what kind of issues you're are you dealing with because how much of a little um, bubble do you get in when mm-hmm. you don't aren't a renter and you don't you're not worried about housing security in terms of like where am I going to live next month or where yeah. when my lease expires or how am I going to afford it right? Um, I mean my mortgage is a, is a fixed rate so mm-hmm. I mean it's not changing dramatically from year to year. Yeah, yeah, and I I know the. <clears throat> I'm a tenant, and it was only this year that I realized I need to – we had a year lease at first, and then I asked yeah. my landlord, like, mm-hmm. I want to renew for another year. Otherwise, it probably would have just gone month to month. Oh, interesting, yeah. But because yeah. of all of this, I was like – and I – moving out here, it took us three months to find a place. Hmm. And we're wow. like a yeah. you know, middle-class white family. We had mm-hmm. a dog, which made it really hard, but that it does, was yeah. so competitive. Like mm-hmm. 50 people would be going for a spot wow. at the same time. And so to think about what that means, the minute someone, if you have anything on yeah. your record, yep. you owe some money, sure. like the ki- people just get to the very bottom of the list and then they can't find, they can't get housing. Right. And, you know, these recent experiences for the Tiki tenants and now the Merkel tenants, um, it's these case managers have been awesomely supportive, helping them find housing. But when they're up against this one individual, he was eighty dollars short of the monthly income required because they do these mm. income requirements, and they said no. And eighty dollars, yeah. So, and I just want to. I think thinking about for folks who may not be renters or mm-hmm. interact with renters a lot, um, I think. Paying attention to this issue is obviously super important. Yeah. And even the fundamental premise of home ownership and how uh, that yeah. can be so actually isolating often yeah. because people are then worried about their own space. And sure. I understand, you know, sometimes stuff gets expensive, you have to fix and whatever. Yeah. But, and it becomes often in our economy, which can be struggling for people across the spectrum their home becomes their equity. And right. so like the yeah. thought yeah, of compromising that. Yeah. yeah that they, 
Right, right. So, but I think, and if we get into a conversation about property taxes in order to help pay for mm, public right. housing, interesting. What yeah. that that's a good moment where any homeowner could come out and say, and I would like a progressive property tax. Like, let's just tax houses that are worth more than a million dollars. Like, right. let's just do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, we have to change the state law, I think, for that. But because um, <clears throat> you can't have a progressive tax. Uh, but I think for some folks in our uh, DSA group, we talked about anybody who owned a house or thought about how their parents had owned a house. Almost every time it came from some kind of generational wealth. Right, exactly. My parents mm-hmm. bought their first yeah. house in 1975. Some Aunt Gertrude died mm-hmm. and they got $30,000 and that was mm-hmm. the down payment for yeah. their first house. And that built the equity mm-hmm. that they had. Their mm-hmm. And every right. single person in the room, most of them were middle class or maybe working class white folks we're able to say the only reason we were able to get a house was some kind of yeah. wealth that came. So that kind of recognition mm-hmm. and the, to me, like, um, there's a group called the Right to the City Alliance, and they have a national campaign called Homes for All, and they put mm-hmm. out a report called Communities Over Commodities, mm-hmm. and they advocate for a policy of reparations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you say the reparations word and people. Interesting. I think, well, we should literally be given yes. to... All the communities of color and other mar- yeah. who have been just deliberately shut out of yeah. any yeah. kind of generational equity gaining through mm. all the historical practices. So, I mean, I think we should have a financial reparations process. But yeah. the policy of reparations, meaning like any decision any city is ever making, mm-hmm. that history has to be front and center. So I was at a planning commission meeting. They were talking about rezoning and this mm. is someone was talking about, oh, I don't want to change the character of my neighborhood. Let's unpack that. Describe <laughs> the character. Like, define yes. exactly what you mean when you say that. Subtweet. Yeah. <laughs> like, how are we ensuring that every policy the city decides yes. around housing is deli- is reversing the negative impacts mm. that have been that would be done to yeah. marginalized populations yeah. and specifically communities of color? Like, yeah. that needs to be built in. And we have an Office of Equity of Human Rights in the city of Tacoma, which is great. They made this great video called How We Got Here. Here. Yep. But and but I think we could do better. And I think technically they are supposed to put city policies through that. But mm-hmm. any city policy I've seen since I've been here, there's no there hasn't been a deliberate yeah. kind of acknowledgement yeah. of that. So being a lot more accountable, explicit to yeah. about and the city of Seattle, I think, has a whole staff that that's like all they do. Like mm-hmm. every yeah. it's called a racial equity lens that future wise yes, organization has right. been looking at even just to apply organizationally. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I mean, it takes capacity and work mm-hmm. to do, but it's yeah. like so fundamentally important. Well, and that, mm-hmm. some of that work is like you mentioned, it's already happening in other cities or organizations. Right. And so if you're looking at that, you can take some of those practices and then apply that to your organization. Like I'm involved in several ed advocacy groups and that's one of the things we've been talking about. We say that we're anti-racist. We say that we care about equity and we say that we put, you know, students first, et cetera, et cetera. But are all of our policies doing that? Do, is it really at the forefront of everything? And are we using that mm-hmm. continually looking at it and reevaluating it as our learning grows, as more research comes out, as more ways to look at you know, this, these policy dynamics. And then there's way more nuanced things about right. institutional racism yes. that shows up in culture. So yeah. we like as middle class white folks, how do we interact in terms of what do we prioritize? Mm. And uh, we mm. I forget where it came from, but I can send you the link to this that laid out like a lot of traits about yes. there's only one right way or this mm. sense of urgency mm. or this obsessive yeah. over outcome over instead of the process yeah. and like how That's that so plays cultural. out and like interpersonal yeah, dynamics in workplaces and how so often in the nonprofit sector too, like white led spaces, yeah. what kind of environments created for anyone who's that's not the default mm-hmm. culture, yes. right. um, and really being deliberate and conscious about that mm-hmm. too. I've noticed being because I'm on the HOA board for my condo that, um, in being like multi, being an owner in multifamily housing is a really weird experience. Not weird bad, but like it's just a unique experience where you're negotiating with your neighbors all the time over things that to me seem extremely petty. Um, but it's stuff like landscaping where like, how does our, how does this area look right to the neighborhood? And, um, like I, I think about just how, um, you know, that like that lens of every, this is not, I I don't think any of my fellow HOA board members listen to this podcast, but, um, (laughs) older white women, right. And the things that they prioritize and make important, um, just like it's, it's, it's incredible. Like I, it's not, um. I also live in the burbs, so I don't know. It's just like thinking about I, I'm my brain is kind of bent from what you were just saying. Um, that like if we look at it only through the lens of like what's acceptable or desirable to to white 
mm-hmm. people. Like it's not, mm-hmm. we're not thinking about how to um, bring up our neighborhoods or support everyone. I think another one model that could help kind of get us outside of our frame right now is for the Tiki Apartments and the Merkel Hotel is two Mm -hmm. examples. I think most folks in this listening would know something about that. But they're two places that were predominantly low income apartment units and developers bought them and kicked everyone out and are renovating them. Uh, And in general, that's like a business model. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what people say. We buy up places, Mm -hmm. we renovate them, and then we charge higher rents. Like, that's, you know, what real estate developers do. And that inherently means that folks will be displaced, many low-income, many with disabilities, many communities of color. And what would it look like if we said, okay, the Tiki and the Merkel, they needed to be renovated. They were not in the best shape. What would it have looked like if the tenants had had the opportunity to buy that building, mm-hmm. maybe with support from the housing authority mm-hmm. or a low or no interest loan? The t- they're paying rent every month. Yeah. That could go yeah. to or the tenants association could come together with support from a public entity mm. and purchase that property. A group in Pittsburgh did this called the Northside Coalition for Fair Housing. Yeah. The place went up for sale and they have 50-50 owned with there's a private developer, but then the tenant association owns half of it. They have a board. Mm. They help manage it. The the people who live there actually who do the management maintenance, child care, yeah. like uh, cleaning facilities. So a totally different vision for how this yeah. can look. Yeah. I know the housing authority just made this deal with um, CWD Investments who bought the Tiki Apartments and uh, the Tacoma Community College. And we were able to get Tiki tenants said, well, why weren't we included? We want to mm-hmm. be a part yeah. of this. We should be able to return if you're going to subsidize the units. And the housing authority director, had Michael Mira, mentioned to me, well, the bank's also a part of this. And I was like, why couldn't the bank just lend the money to either yeah. the housing authority yeah. or the tenants themselves? Yeah. Like, why do we need this outside private and who's, you know, they're going to make their they're money. Sure. Yeah. So, they're taking a cut. Yeah. Like, and, and so now, I mean, to have that different kind of model, right of first refusal, unfortunately, that's the idea mm-hmm. that whoever's living yeah. in a place would get the right to buy it if they yep. can get the money at mm-hmm. the whatever rate it's going yeah. for. Yeah. It got turned down in state court I think in the 90s Mm -hmm. but there could be an opportunity to challenge that the courts look different and then the right of first return idea that like people shouldn't we shouldn't just accept like people say oh change is happening people have to accept it I'm like that may be true, and we don't have to accept that yes. folks who've lived in a place for decades and then as this redevelopment and growth happens that they're forced yeah. out. Like, we yeah. don't need yeah. to accept that as a reality. Exactly. There are models out there that we can do. And also then for, to the idea that the tenants would have a collective ownership over the place yeah. and have a say over what it looks like. Yeah. Instead of right now, this like there's, you know, you might get lucky if you get a good landlord. That's mm-hmm. been what mm-hmm. I experience most often. Um, and the something as fundamental as where a person lives mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, should be a more democratic space. And we mm-hmm. think building a tenants union, which we're an organizing committee now, we're hoping to form into an actual union, um, is the way to gain the kind of collective power needed to like change the system in a really fundamental way. Mm-hmm. Because in that process, someone's going to lose. Mm-hmm. And it's the people who are making yeah. the profits right now. Or maybe they'll just make less profit. <laughs> Shock. <laughs> okay, let's pause right there. We'll take a okay. quick break and we'll come back. Sounds good. This is Amanda Westbrook, host of the sister podcast, We Are Tacoma. How do you balance changing the world with paying bills? Thanks to a new program at Pacific Lutheran University, you may not have to. Let me tell you about the PLU Pledge. Here's the pledge PLU makes to new undergraduate students. If, after you graduate, you have a full-time job and you make less than $40,000 per year, PLU will help you make your student loan payments. Got that? If you want to pursue your passion in, let's say, music, or you want to fight to make the world a better place through nonprofit work, but your paycheck just isn't where it needs to be yet, PLU will step in and help. It's one way that PLU invests in its students, even after they've left the campus, and one of the many ways PLU works to be accessible and affordable for all students. Check out plu.edu slash PLU pledge to learn more because student debt shouldn't stand in the way of following your passion. 
And we're back. We're back. So can you, um, I know it's kind of like we've already had a lot of conversation, but I was wondering if you could just back up a little bit and describe what exactly is a tenants union mm-hmm. and how do these things yeah, form? And I, I don't know if everyone knows what that is. Yeah. So most basically, a tenants union is a group of tenants that come together uh, to share uh, their struggles yeah. often as tenants and then collectively determine ways to address those issues by, you know, confronting. It doesn't have to be adversarial at first, but sometimes it can become adversarial. Mm-hmm. Um, the landlord or property manager or owner of their building. So there's the Tenants Union of Washington State mm-hmm. is an organization that operates statewide and they do a lot. There are individual buildings of t- unions that they'll support because that's the most simple way to think of it. Yeah. Like you knock on your neighbor's mm-hmm. door. Oh, you're yeah. You didn't get your toilet fixed either. Oh, me neither. Mm. And then down the street, oh, this person is having has a leak in their roof. Oh yeah, I have a leak too. If we just each individually go to our landlord and ask for the repair, maybe mm-hmm. we'll get it. Maybe yeah. we won't. Maybe we'll decide to take them to court if they don't do it. But likely not. Yeah. The minute even just three people mm-hmm. show up and address the landlord together, really. That makes a huge difference. And so this is like in a labor union, right? Like an individual teacher or worker, you know, steel workers. We have a lot in Pittsburgh can go to the boss and say something. Even just three people. Mm -hmm. Immediately they know, oh, man, this makes a difference. Exactly. And in a labor union... The biggest threat is your labor, so you can strike. Mm-hmm, but yep. there are rent strikes now happening in places around the country where the landlords can't function without our money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if we all come together and say, until you fix this, mm-hmm. we're going to withhold our payment, that gets their attention. Mm-hmm. Um And so it's basically like the Mm -hmm. most basic strength in numbers idea. And so they run the gamut. I think they can happen really informally Mm -hmm. where people just happen to do it and then they can get more formalized. But I would say Mm -hmm. our group came out of the Tiki Tenants struggle Mm -hmm. and became the Tiki Tenants Organizing Committee and then formed into Mm -hmm. Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee because people from all over Tacoma were getting involved. And often an organizing committee is what's formed before a union Mm -hmm. gets formed. So um, we're looking at that. And I would say most basically, you know, if you have a common set of principles that you agree to Mm -hmm. and um, you have some kind of commitment over what those look like and some way to define membership, you can have a tenants union. Mm -hmm. Um, And some, you know, would develop bylaws or... Usually they would be any resources would come as membership based. So someone would Mm -hmm. pay dues every month. And some people say, well, how can really low income people be expected to pay dues? And I talked to someone from the Right to the City Alliance about this. And he was like, even just a very small amount, even a dollar a month, which most, you know, makes a difference to show like they're committed and invested in this. And it pays off ultimately because they now have this power together. Yeah. 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 So, um, and usually, I mean, some tenants union are probably all ba- funded by individual membership. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know, like, for example, the Tenants Union of Washington, they do tenant rights workshops mm-hmm. and education. Mm-hmm. So they actually get some funding from the city to help do that kind yeah. of thing. Because um, I think a helpful thing to keep in mind, too, is like how often people will say, well, there's two sides to oh the story. God. Right. Like, well, you have to hear the landlord, too. Yeah. And any time you need to hear the. (laughs) Well, and and so, you know, we'll 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 hear stories. um, You know, tenants will share stories and then we'll often have landlords share. Well, how difficult it is to remove a troublesome tenant. And okay, that story may be there. But like in general, to keep in mind, like how fundamentally different that how there is not an equivalent here. Right. Like we're talking about people having a roof over their heads, like one of the most fundamental things people need in their lives to do anything to live a safe, healthy, happy life versus someone who stands to lose a month's rent or like some compromise to their profit. Like it is not an equivalent conversation. No, it's a power dynamic. It's a really unequal power. And it's also like the fact that um i mean like this whole thing is transactional so to say like like um the the money changing hands piece is transactional right that you what about getting rid of troublesome landlords so they're like oh i how do i get rid of irksome tenants well i i mean how do we get rid of you because like if people are being abusive to their tenants or withholding um stuff from their tenants that they are legally obligated to do or they're withholding things from their tenants that are just 
important to do just because you're a good person, um, like taking care of people that you have a financial relationship with, like that are moral and ethical, then how do we get rid of you? Yeah. Right. Like that's. Well, yeah. And it's interesting, too. Um, I just lost my train of thought. Sorry. I just want like, I just got a little mad. Um, because that makes me like it'll the the train will it'll hop back on the tracks. It usually the, does. You're talking about both sides. Sorry, I didn't mean to like totally steal no, your thunder. Fine. No, it's okay. For some reason, it just went. Yeah. Out. So I have a question about. So I think about a lot of landlords have property managers, and so a lot of places that I rented were owned by mm-hmm. I don't know who in Seattle yeah. or mm-hmm. whatever big company, and then I interact with the property manager. And so, yeah. what's the role of the property manager in these spaces? And also, how does that play out for like? Organizing, So I think about, you know, one of the studios I lived in across from the jail um, in Tacoma, we had cockroaches, right? And yeah. so, like, I mean, I grew up as, in developing nations, so, like, cockroaches were, like, a, a thing anyway, mm-hmm. just because of, like, the way houses are built and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't – in my mind at first, I was like, this isn't a big deal. And then I was like, I'm in America. Like, why do I have cockroaches in my house? And, like, mm-hmm. what does this have to do with? Mm-hmm. And so I was just kind of thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And so, like, all my interactions were with the property manager who was just, like, another dude trying to work and, like, live his life, you know, and manage his property. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what is – I mean, what's the role of that? And and what does it look like for organizing? Yeah, that's a good question. I We – in general, with the law, yeah. whoever is the property manager, the person who is the property manager paid to come serve mm-hmm. you a notice mm-hmm. or, you know, or the owner itself, in the law, they're the landlord. So yeah. it's important okay. that any correspondence you have mm. um, with that individual or beyond the management company to the owner itself applies as the landlord. So mm-hmm. they're all ultimately responsible for oh, the okay. same things, yep. accountable in the same ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes landlords will hire not effective property management mm-hmm. companies. But the key is that they, let's say the owner does that, they need to know if that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I recently was talking to someone about Eli Moreno, who um, just bought the Merkel Hotel and all those folks have now been forced out. He uh, owns the Mark Twain Apartments, which are some of the notoriously, it's very poorly managed. People get harassed by the manager. There's Mm -hmm. all these issues. And we brought it up with um, the mayor and some city council members because they, Eli Moreno just got the bid to redevelop the city hall, this like high profile Mm -hmm. Thing. He got $2 million off the purchase price to do something good for the public. Apparently, there's going to be a community meeting room, which we desperately need more community meeting rooms in yeah. Tacoma, by the way. But that's true. don't know if that is what he, you know, he got $2 million dollars off. the crap that you're doing but at your apartment. I mentioned you run. Um, to yeah, no some kidding. of the folks from the city, you know, this is, seems like a concern mm-hmm. that he's going to mm-hmm. redevelop City Hall and he has this track record in other places. And they were like, well, maybe he doesn't know. I was like, really? Like, yeah. And so I'm mm. like, well, and I think they're directly going to address him about that. But like, to be able to use the property management company is kind of this buffer. Yeah. Sure. Um, but it can be hard in organizing because it's like I think both need to be pressured often. Yeah. And does well, the also, landlord? The landlord little, might yeah. not be aware of every single detail of what yeah, an individual sure. property manager does. But yesterday, the folks at the Merkel Hotel were locked out. Which is illegal. Yeah. And the property, ma- I'm assuming, you know, the property manager may have been who was doing that, but what role did Eli Moreno have? I don't know. Like, that's an open question. Yeah. yeah. But in general, with the organizing, you as, whatever the property manager does, they get their orders from the owner. The owner yeah. is ultimately responsible. Yeah. And so the yeah. left hand needs to know what the right hand's doing. <laughs> And also, just you just describing that reminds me of like the Hydra. It's like the monster with many heads. It's like the one head is a landlord, but it's all the same body. Like they're all working on the same thing. So it's like they need to be aware of yeah. what's happening. And I'll also say to like for for landlords that we've interacted with who will say like we want to do right by our tenants and highlight like the challenges of maintaining properties. Mm, And it can be really the costs if you are having to evict a tenant who's causing a lot of issues and going through like that's I understand that there's a process and infrastructure required to Mm, do that like mm. that 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 I appreciate that. But then 
uh, you hear this kind of, I would say it's a fetishization of the mom and pop huh. landlord huh. that like we need to make sure yep. we're protecting them. But it's like if you don't have the resources to do this properly and in a way that protects tenants rights and is like properly regulated, yeah. like you shouldn't run this business. That's it's like point. at a restaurant. Yeah. We're not going to say, oh, you're a mom and pop restaurant. No worries about the cockroaches. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, we're not. It's like a health and safety issue. Yeah. So it's right. important that. Uh, we ensure that folks, if someone's going to have that business, that it's properly regulated. We yep. need like a yeah. registration, which we don't have. We're like a rental registry that we know all of the properties that are registered so that can be properly monitored. Wait, yeah. that doesn't exist already? No. We don't have it in the city of Tacoma, like wow. an actual rental registry. Yeah. People have to renter their business license to yeah. rent. But I could enter one business license and then have 60 properties, yeah. and wow. those aren't individually tracked. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Is you, there so you have to do some digging to see if who owns what, right? I mean, yes. I've done yes. that a little bit for, for, some yeah. folks, for some of the work I've done. Is yeah. there a way, and this is like very business-minded, I realize that, so um, I'm just with, you know asking from that perspective, but is there a way to incentivize people to be less shitty landlords? Well, it's interesting because you capitalism. say that because there's a thing called the Landlord Liaison Project <laughs> oh. that has been implemented and there are folks working on it in the city of Tacoma um, through Associated Ministries. They kind of got the contract oh, yeah. to run it. When the state mm. passed the source of income discrimination law, yeah. one of the ways they passed it was saying landlords could get these funds to help mitigate any of the risks I'm putting that in quotes, but uh, of quotes. renting to a yeah. low-income tenant or a tenant okay. with Section 8. Because in a lot of ways, it seems like a good deal. You're guaranteed rent every yeah. month yeah. from right. HUD. You know, like, yeah. that money is coming. Yeah. So they have a whole all these funds available. One is to get your um, unit up into proper repair because yeah. it has sure. to get inspected if you have right. a Section 8. So that makes sense. Like, let's yeah. help make sure these can be in good shape. Mm -hmm. But one that was really appalling to me, and in general, I think the program can be a good thing for that. Sure. Yeah. But that instance I said where if I'm a tenant and I make $1,000 a month and the landlord is requiring me to make $1,100 a month, mm -hmm. this fund will actually give that money to the landlord. So, mm. like, they would get $100 a month to instead of the, just the cover cost the, of the, mar the market yeah. price for the rent instead of giving it to the, to tenant, the tenant who could really use the extra $100. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So that was really that, and I need to get more clarity about how that is actually working, but that was a yeah. little strange to that me. Is strange. Yeah. And I think in for in my or like our group too thinks that resources for housing should go to more to a process that socializes housing, mm -hmm. whether it's public housing that we know there's more accountability. Yeah. They, the public housing authority has just cause, you know, mm -hmm. like they have right of first return. Yeah. They have these protections in place. Yeah. Yes, it may be, some would argue, more expensive to run things in public housing, but let's make sure we're putting the adequate resources to the things that are most fundamentally important, right. like housing. Well, and then how does that offset other costs in, like, if you like you're talking earlier about like zooming out and kind of seeing the big picture right and that that like your work has helped you do both like get in the weeds and see the like systemic issues like if you are have secure housing and you make that like a priority how does that and i like i you said earlier trickle down but like which is just not, not the right term but like how does that spread what's the kind of ripple of that yeah. into other areas of life because yeah. if you have stable housing you're less likely to have other issues associated with being low income because you are not yes. concerned about you don't have the housing insecurity right yes. like imagine going to school going applying for a job getting a job going to like uh, arts or culture yeah. when you don't have a home or that base yeah, like yeah. to not have yeah. that base it's like one of the most fundamental things. I mean, my time in Pittsburgh was so focused on transit and mobility and yeah. how vital that access was. Like you, there, it's like you can have a home, but then if you don't have a way to get to your job right. or you're for your kids to get to school, how how are you supposed to manage that? Mm -hmm. In this instance, it was a preschool. Um, so yeah, with the the impact on public health too. Mm, like there yeah. was an individual who has epilepsy that got pushed out of the Merkel. Was really concerned about being homeless. He's in shared housing now as a temporary thing. But the impact of he had just been on the streets. Like he would have ended yeah. up at the ER. Mm -hmm. The like public health challenges. The yeah. costs there like right. associated with this guy needs this support. But without his stable place to be able to get his mm -hmm. medicine and get proper support. 
yeah, it totally yeah. goes out. And if we put proper investments into that, what a huge difference it would make. Right. And I know the city right now is doing their budget and they're putting a million dollars to have five new police officers. Mm-hmm. We have 20 mm-hmm. vacancies in police, yeah. so I'm not really yeah. clear on that. Yeah. That's the amount of money. We're putting $1.2 million to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. Like, And there, what's more vital to public safety than people having homes? Right. I mean, yeah. talk about a way. Yeah. Yeah. So I keep thinking, um, and kind of back to your question about capitalism, but I keep thinking about like, how do we get more people to care about this, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, you, you can't legislate morality, and I, I have, like, problems with that anyway. But I, I just think about, and kind of back to your point about, like, cultural norms and stuff. So what is, I mean, what is the argument to be made with people who who are in power, who have mm-hmm. these, um, the ability to make these changes? I mean, at that some of that top level. I, I know I believe in grassroots organizing and all, all that stuff, too. But I'm just thinking about that, like, how do we... How do we get people or what is the argument to be made to say, like, no, you need to care about this and this matters. Even if you live in a nice home in Issaquah or wherever yeah. you live, you need to care about this. Yeah. And you can help. You have a responsibility to your neighbor. Like, how do we I don't know how do you respond to that. How, how do you get, get people, people to, to care about it? It's a really good question. <laughs> yeah. I will say I'll start with a positive yeah. that it was astounding. Awesome to me to see the the general response to the Tiki situation. Yeah. Like it got on every news channel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People were talking about it on the bus, in the streets, you know, appalled at the situation, wanting to feel like they could like the fact that it captured so much of the attention of Tacomans to me is a signal that mm-hmm. people do care. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. And if they actually thought about what that meant for an individual and then like, what if that happened to me? Like, mm-hmm. can I imagine coming home and being told I, only, I had 20 days to get mm-hmm. out of my right. apartment that I'd lived in for 20 years? Like people respond and that shows us something. Yeah. And that it's, you know, this crisis has been stewing for a long time I said um, at a meeting the other day it's like the frog in the pot that slowly is boiling Mm -hmm. I think Tacoma was kind of like that and now the frog has jumped out it's like wait a second this is a crisis (laughs) and a lot of people are paying attention I think the jump to like what do folks actually do about it? I felt a little frustrated. The group working to mobilize tenants, folks. I mean, the tenants from Tiki were so amazing because they, some of them who found their housing, they're like, but I'm not done. Like this, like Donna, who was there yeah. at um, the Adult Civics Happy Hour, like I get how much of an impact this has yeah. and I want to be a part of the fight. So those, you know, they're ready to keep mm-hmm. moving and going. Mm-hmm. And I think making that connection for what individuals can do. We felt a little like these tenant protections are moving and still like our group's one of the only ones that's actually like mobilizing yeah. tenants to show up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's complex reasons for that. Yeah. I think a lot of like the nonprofit sector is a more service model. And so it's about serving the tenants, but not then saying, hey, do you want to show up at city council and say something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and making that connection yeah. seems important. Yeah. Or then other people who may care, but then, you know, there's a lot going on like people are wanting to canvas for the elections yeah. or but I think if we can make those connections clearer or even realize like a small little thing can really make a difference like anyone mm-hmm. listening right now if you're concerned and know like either tenants in your life or you're concerned about how this is playing out in Tacoma like if you write a letter or email mm-hmm. it's on their website to the mayor and every city council member and just say mm-hmm. tenants need more rights there's this whole set of protections you're considering please pass them and make sure they stay robust and don't get watered down yeah. you can do that and that makes a huge impact yeah. and we do live in a democracy we're supposed to yep. that even that small piece of civic engagement yeah. makes a huge difference and i'd say it's also been awesome to work with folks who've like Donna said, never been in a municipal building in their lives. And they then united over this common struggle. And we're like, wait, like we should, and we felt this with the public transit folks, Mm -hmm. like we should have a say over what this, our basic public infrastructure looks like. And we're going to show up and then we develop relationships. Mm -hmm. We build Mm -hmm. community. A lot of retired folks who might not have a lot of community around them come to our meetings and are like, here's our family now. Like, Mm -hmm. and that's been really beautiful thing to be a part of. Um, and also realize that everyone can't take on every issue yeah, all the course, time yeah. everywhere. Yeah, so I yeah. think that's helpful, mm-hmm. too, that yeah. if it's a small little thing you can do, but yeah. then if it really seizes you, 
you know, being able to get involved in a more significant yeah. way makes a difference. So before we wrap up, um, I do have one more question I want to ask you about just this idea of um, like the intersections of being a white woman, middle class and all of that organizing and specifically in spaces that tend to not mm-hmm. uh, reflect you per se. Mm-hmm. Um, what what kind of challenges are there and how yep. do you make sure you don't fall into the like, I'm going to save everybody yep. mode? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think the way I work on that is try to be as aware as possible about my position and the privilege that I've had that's allowed me to even do this work now. Um, It helps right now that I'm a tenant. Like, I think that makes Mm -hmm. a difference in terms of the kind of relationship I can develop. But I think it's working hard to make sure that it's not about me, like I was saying, and that we're constantly creating spaces for folks to take leadership positions, realize their own power. Sometimes it is a matter of like gaining some particular skills, like what does it mean to talk to a reporter or Mm -hmm. work on like messaging like that? Or I would say too, organizing is really hard work and there's a whole set of skill sets, but it's been really cool for me when I can connect with tenants who say, well, I really like talking to people on the street. Like some folks love to do that. And like, I'll stand outside Walmart and get people to sign something all day. And we're like, awesome. Someone else is like, well, I can, you know, put stuff out on Facebook or I can make these phone calls Mm -hmm. or like, I like to help run meetings, like figuring out what skills can come to the table Mm -hmm. to be a part of it. Um, And I think, yeah, in general, that kind of centering is really important. Uh, And it's also hard, though, to make sure that when when something happens, like this tiki situation where folks wanted to say, well, we should be a part Mm -hmm. of this process to determine what the housing is going to look like, the housing authority calls me and is like, Okay, Molly, what's happening? Yeah. And like, what does it mean to make sure that we're honoring all the folks yes. who are involved, yeah. mm-hmm. who don't use email, yeah. um, and that we can reach out in significant ways that are meaningful mm-hmm. so that people feel ownership over what's happening and it's not just like yeah. me. Yeah. You're not yeah. gatekeeping the kind exactly. of um, access. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all, it's also hard when there's just that reality of like for me to be able to put in this time. And sure. I would ideally say that if I had my hands on some resources, yeah. <laughs> I would want to be able to pay to support folks yeah. that are doing this yeah. organizing yeah. Um, because that that's a better model because sometimes people will say everything should always be all volunteer all the time and it's like well then who gets to do it if it, uh-huh. and then it's a bunch of interchangeable white uh-huh. ladies exactly. <laughs> so, so like really exactly. being deliberate about that piece I think is important and to like recognize our own limitations like yeah. and, and it's so hard in such a segregated society in so many ways like And I guess it's hard because some could say, well, y'all should slow down and make sure that anything that's happening is not just like centering folks, but like POC led. And that's a really important piece. Also honoring work that's already been done and Mm -hmm. not like stepping on toes or taking up too much space. But we, you know, we've thought about that. Like, what does it mean if the tenants group there, a lot of the leadership within it is predominantly white. Like, how do we confront Mm -hmm. that? How do we slow down to make sure that we're bringing in all the voices that are needed? So and I think we could do a better job even just as a group having that conversation, like bringing it, um, whether it's like how's the culture play out. Um, We recently had folks in East Side that we were able to connect with. And they were mainly Spanish speaking, and we don't have someone in a long term mm-hmm. capacity mm-hmm. who can translate or be. Yeah. A, and so we were really worried, like, even mm-hmm. if we just get a translator once, yeah. if you can't sustain yes. it, it's not very responsible yeah. to like connect yeah, sure. and then not. So we're like trying to work through things like that too. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for um, sharing that and being yeah, honest thank about you so much. kind of the limitations. Yeah. Should we just go to do your. Do your fudging homework. Okay. Interchangeable. White ladies! So what is the homework for our audience today, um, I, our listeners? I've heard a couple things that I think are our homeworks. I personally am going to recommend going back and listening to the Adult Civics Happy Hour episode on homelessness that we just had mm-hmm. last week. Um, although by the time this episode comes out, it'll be a couple weeks out. But I'll link to that in the show notes. So please check that out. Molly was on the panel and there's a lot of really amazing things that were shared about what's going on in Tacoma and how to be involved and to use um, whatever voice you have in advocacy work that you can do uh other recommendations so i um 
was thinking about we got a we got a good education today about some issues that are happening in Tacoma. But if you are a non-Tacoma resident listening to this, you should start looking at what are some of the housing issues where you live. I know I live in Auburn, so some of the housing issues there are um, absurdly high rents near transit. And so um, we have a sounder, like the the light rail, not light rail, um, the commuter train station in Auburn. And the, the rents at the apartments that are in downtown Auburn near the train station are like $1,800 a month for a studio apartment. And so um, ha- start looking at housing issues in your in your community if you're a non-Tacoma resident, um, because I know we have some folks who don't live here who are um, concerned about, you know, their communities. And so look into that. Great. Uh, any recommendations for folks, Molly? You kind of talked about the color of law and writing a letter. Do you want to push that or is there something else that you think people should do? Um, check out the Communities Over Commodities report that was put out by the Right to the City Alliance. It's a national group, and they're doing – they highlight some really awesome alternative models, and there's a lot of good housing organizing happening across the country. This is, like, such a systemic issue that we can really work to learn from mm-hmm. what other places are doing and apply it here. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the Thank show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for Bye. Bye. <laughs> The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is reading a book. A book. We're going to read White Fragility. By Robin D'Angelo. Please pick up your copy at King's Book or your favorite local bookstore. Yeah, I mean, yeah, get it soon because you need to read it by the end of November. Otherwise, you're going to fail this assignment. (laughs) Go ahead and read it. Post comments online. Use the hashtag ReadLessBasic. Bye. Bye. And please support Channel 253 with a monthly or annual membership at Channel253.com. How cute are we? Adorable. Yeah, super cute. Your shirt is super cute. <laughs> We're such Mine interchangeable a, white ladies. My, my, this shirt is not a full shirt. It's a dicky. <laughs> oh, you guys are wearing the same shirt. No, but mine is mine ends here because it's a dicky. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. This is Channel 253.